invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. The title is a little longer than most of my titles. As we look at Mark 8, 27 to 33, we're going to see, and this is the title, the two most important truths to know about Jesus. Why am I flipping when I have a bookmark? There we go. The two, two most important truths to know about Jesus. The 12 disciples are at a crossroads. They have been following their teacher for two years. They've been following their master, their teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, for two years as he has preached and ministered in Galilee. And what, is, what are the things that they have seen him do? They have seen the they have seen him make the blind see. They have seen him make the mute speak. They have seen him make the deaf hear and the lame walk and the possessed sane. All the things that the Old Testament prophets said Messiah would do. And what's more than that, Jesus has done mighty supernatural acts. He has walked on water. He has fed the multitudes in the wilderness. He has commanded the elements and he's raised the dead. Many of these things on multiple occasions. But the disciples, as I said, they're at a crossroads. Jesus is no longer publicly engaging the crowds. He has withdrawn from his public ministry and instead of going out to the people, he's rather going out and seeking isolation from the people so that he can devote himself to these 12 men and mold them from who they have been into being fishers of men and apostles. The men who will be entrusted with his precious gospel. And we have seen opposition rising. We've seen opposition from the Pharisees. We've seen opposition from the priests. We've even seen opposition from Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. And now more and more we are seeing opposition from even the people of the land, beginning with uncertainty and a myriad of opinions about who Jesus really is. They have failed. The, the, the majority of the Jewish people have failed to grasp and understand his identity. And so these 12 men are at a crossroads. The, the easy days are over, and from here on out, Jesus is on the road to the cross, and every step of the way will be marked with suffering and hardship. And, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is on that road, on this path towards the cross, are the 12 going to be swayed by public opinion? We've see, we, we have facepalmed ourselves, as it were, as we've seen the disciples fumble the ball time and time again. Are they going to continue to disappoint? Are they going to be swayed by public opinion? Or are they beginning to perceive the important truths about their master? In our text today, we see, we see two pivotal, we see two watershed, two crucially important truths about Jesus that, that we, as disciples of Jesus, two important truths that we must appropriate, two truths we must get right. They're kind of important. The first is the truth concerning his person, which we'll see in the first three verses, 27 through 29. And the second is the truth concerning his purpose in the last four verses, verses 30 to 33. Let's first look at the question concerning the person of Christ. Read with me beginning at verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. 
but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now, what's the scene? Jesus and the twelve have, are leaving the region of Bethsaida. This is a, a little fishing village about a mile north of the Sea of Galilee. And they are journeying northern, northward around 25 miles towards Caesarea Philippi. We're not told that they actually get or go into the town of Caesarea Philippi, but they're going towards the outlying villages. This is an area on the fringe of Israel's borders. They live, they, they are neighbors. The Jews who have lived here for a long time, they are neighbors with their pagan Canaanite neighbors. And if you know anything about Israel's track record with being faithful and true in the midst of of their pagan neighbors, they didn't exactly have a great record. They didn't have a good batting average when it came to religious faithfulness. So there, especially here in Caesarea Philippi, there has been a long established history of pagan worship, of polytheistic worship, of worship towards many gods, many names, many entities, which include the the Greek god Pan, which is why the the Greek name of this region was was originally Panaeus. So Pan, a Greek god, was worshipped here. Caesar Augustus was worshipped here. Herod the Great uh, erected a a temple towards Caesar Augustus. And then in, in the days of Jesus, Herod the Great's son, Philip, Philip the Tetrarch, he enlarged the city and in honor of Caesar called it Caesarea, but there, there were many Caesareas. And so to, to distinguish it, he called it Caesarea Philippi, the Caesar's place by Philip. So, so not only are Greek gods and the emperor worshipped here, even Herod the Tetrarch has a little bit of pomp and renown in this area. It is, called, it is named after him anyway. So that's where they're going. They, they don't, we're not told that they go into the city, but somewhere along the way, I'm, I'm guessing, probably within sight of the villages, probably within sight of, this, of the temple and the villages and all these places of pagan worship where, where different entities, different gods, and then the emperors and kings, where they're all worshipped, where they're all paid homage, where deference and respect is given. Jesus asks this first pointed question who do the people say that i am out here on the fringe out here on the fringe of of galilee in in near gentile territory the the vo- the voices of criticism of the pharisees of the sadducees and even of of, of herod are absent All the voices of Jewish criticism are momentarily silenced. And he asks this question, who do people say that I am? Now remember, the twelve have been amongst the people of the land. They even just visited uh, the hometown for at least three of the disciples, Bethsaida. They've been around the people. They, They have stood by as Jesus has taught the crowds. They've stood by as Jesus healed disease after disease after disease. They've stood by as demons were cast out. And they've even been sent out on a short-term missions trip throughout Galilee, preaching and teaching and themselves healing. You remember that back in chapter 6? They have not only stood by during two miraculous feedings, but remember this, they themselves dispersed. They handed out all the wafers and the loaves and the, and the fish. They handed them out to all the people. And then after both miraculous feedings, they went out and they collected the leftovers. That's not Jesus' calling, by the way. There has been no shortage of opportunity for the twelve to overhear or to engage in, in discussions with what people have been saying about Jesus. They've been in the thick of it. They have heard what people are saying. And so Jesus asks, what, 
What are they saying? What, what are they, the people, saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And there are three summary answers that, that the disciples give. There may have been more, but these are the, these are the, uh, the most uh, common answers. There's three. The first, which we'll see in the beginning of verse 28, is people say you're John the Baptist. And surely Jesus' bold teaching on repentance and the kingdom of God, as, as well as his opposition to the Pharisees, this could have reminded the people of John's own preaching when, if you remember back in chapter 1, he calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Talk about a mic drop. He called the Pharisees and the priests a brood of vipers. And we have seen Jesus from day one not being intimidated, but rather calling these these. Uh, religious rulers and religious elites out on their hypocrisy, out on their perversion and their uh, of the scriptures and their abuses on the people. And even Herod himself, if you remember back in chapter uh, 6, verses uh, 14 to 16, even Herod thought when, when he hears that about Jesus' rising popularity, he, what does he think? This, this has to be John, who, whom I've beheaded, come back from the dead. That, what other explanation could it be? So some people say you're... You're John the Baptist. Then continuing in verse 28, others say what? Elijah. Some, some are saying that you're not John the Baptist. You've got to be Elijah. Well, if you remember, like John, Elijah was a, something of a fiery and vivid preacher. He, he wasn't afraid of, of condemning idolatry and condemning faithfulness. And like John, Elijah had a habit of not making the best of friends with kings. And like John, Elijah was a man of the wilderness. And so they see, they see Jesus and they see his fiery preaching. They see him uh, not being afraid to snub the noses of Pharisees, priests, and even kings and being a man who's, who likes to get out and be isolated from time to time to devote himself to prayer and reflection. Maybe you're not John the Baptist, but maybe you're Elijah. Some say. And then continuing in verse 28. Well, you're not, you're not John the Baptist. You're not Elijah. But you, you are one of the prophets. Matthew 16, 14 uh, says that Jeremiah was, was the prophet in mind that most people thought. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And on occasion, Jesus himself showed a, a very soft and tender side. I mean... We've seen his tender side and his mercy, but he, he would go on to even weep during Lazarus's gravesite. And he would weep as he looked over the, city, the whole city of Jerusalem. And also, there was a legend that Jeremiah had hid the ark before the Babylonian exile. And with all of this ramped up messianic expectation that was just building up, they thought, well, before Messiah actually shows up, according to this apocryphal legend, Jeremiah is supposed to return, allegedly, and bring back the ark from wherever he hid it and put it back in the temple. So this guy can't be Messiah, but he is the, the, another forerunner. He is Jeremiah, who is bound to uh, do these things before Messiah can return. So John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah. That, that's who the people say you are, Jesus. Now as we look at these, surely we can see that all three answers, all three opinions have at, at surface value, on the face, decent amount of honor. These are all respectable men. These are all honorable, good, and faithful men. All three were prophets. All three had supernatural ministries and all three were men who stood firm in their prophetic ministry even when it cost them dearly. It cost John the Baptist a lot to speak out against sin. It cost him everything from here up, if you recall. He was arrested and beheaded by Herod for speaking out against sin. And if you remember, Elijah too cost him dearly he was persecuted by ahab he was persecuted by that loveliest of women jezebel 
And he was even persecuted by the people. He was called by the people the troublemaker of Israel for speaking out against sin. And Jeremiah, too, amongst other things, he got thrown into a cistern. All for speaking out against sin. So while each of these three suggestions, these three opinions, these three answers as to who Jesus must really be, there's some honor to them. There's some, there's some weightiness. There's some respect. But the truth of the matter, beloved, is that each of these opinions, each of these conclusions fall woefully short of who Jesus really is. The people are impressed that Jesus wields the power of God. They, they are impressed with the fact that he is surely a mighty prophet. But have they grasped that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What say you? What say you? I'm looking for nods or some audible expression. What say you? Do the people grasp and understand who Jesus is? No. The fact that he is the Christ, the fact that he is the Son of God, the fact that he is the sole means of God saving his people utterly escapes them. The fact that he is the, the sole object to be looking for expectantly, to be placing one's hopes in, escapes them. And the irony is, is each of those three views, as I, as I intimated with Jeremiah, each of those three views, John the Baptist, Elijah, and according to legend, Jeremiah, each of those in the people's eyes were, were forerunners for the Messiah. Jesus can't be the Messiah because according to each of you, he is the forerunner for the Messiah. But they are wrong because Jesus is the Messiah. And this is precisely the point that Mark has been making ever since chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is, that is the conclusion. That profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is, the, is what Mark has been leading us to. He has been leading us to the point at which a man will make this confession, where a man will make this profession. We've seen the Father. We've, we've seen Mark make it. We have seen the Father make it at Jesus' baptism. We've seen the demons make this profession. They know who Jesus is. But God is not looking for demons to profess the Christship of Jesus. He is looking for men and for women and for people to make this profession. That is what Mark has been leading us to. We've been waiting for a man to say that Jesus is the Christ, haven't we? Well, guess what? The good news is today you're going to hear it. Look at verse 29. The people's wrong answer leads to Peter's right answer. Jesus asks them, and this is emphatic. It doesn't quite come out in the English, but it's Jesus saying, but you. I mean, I'm, I'm, just imagine if, if you hold your Bible up to your chest, you might hear the Bible going like this. But you, who do you say that I am? It's emphatic. Who do you say that I am? And, and, and you is also plural. He's asking the whole 12. Peter's going to be the, the one to speak up. He's speaking on behalf of the 12, but he's asking them all. And he's asking them all to answer. In their, in their time with their teacher, in their association with him, after everything they've seen him do, after everything that they have heard him say, after everything they have heard him teach and done, what have they concluded concerning who he is? Now, Jesus asks the question, the first question for the disciples so that they will 
plainly state the wrong answers of the people. Have you ever reiterated something that someone else said, and as you're saying it, maybe you initially thought there was some weight to it, but then when you're actually saying it, maybe to the boss, maybe to your wife or, or, or husband or someone, and as you're actually saying it, you realize this is a dumb idea. This is preposterous. He gets them to plainly state the wrong answers of the people, which will contrast, which will, the, the, the wrong answers will make the right answer all the more glorious and sparkly. And remember that it is now becoming costly to be a disciple of Jesus. Being a follower, being a disciple means being a witness to who he is and what he has done. What that, what that implies is testifying to those who get it wrong about Jesus, what is right about Jesus. And last time I checked, people still don't like being told that they're wrong, that that they have wrong beliefs and wrong positions. But a part of being a witness and 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 a testament to Jesus is telling people who Jesus is, especially those who have it wrong about him. There's coming for these 12 men a time where it is becoming increasingly more costly to be his disciple. It's going to cost them their standing before Herod. It's going to cost them their standing before the Pharisees. It's going to cost them their standing before the priests. And more and more of the crowds, and yes, even their families, even their friends. Which is why Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to pit father against son and mother against daughter and brother against sister. It may cost you friends and family to profess who Jesus is. So with all that on the line, Jesus asks them, who do and feel the weight of the finger? Who do you say that I am? Peter steps up to the plate, and Charlie, I got my sports analogies right. He hits the ball out of the park with a grand slam confession. He hits the ball. Impetuous Peter. Impulsive Peter. The apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Who who asks questions, no, I'm sorry, who speaks first and then asks questions later. Impetuous, impulsive Peter, he actually gets it right. Now, if you look in Matthew 16, Matthew explains that this wasn't because of Peter's doing. Flesh didn't give this to him. It was actually God, but that's beside the point. Look at right here, right here, verse 30. Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're not the forerunner to the Christ. You are the Christ. Right here, Peter's professing the very thing Mark has said in verse chapter 1, verse 1. Peter's saying, in effect, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And in Matthew's account, you get the full expanded profession. You are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a beautiful contrast to all the dead idols, to all the dead emperors that were worshipped in this area. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the one true living God who never dies, who never sleeps, who never grows weary. Beloved, let's rejoice with Peter. He got it right. That was, he, he got the question concerning the person of Jesus right. The first of two critically important truths about jesus we must appropriate he is the christ the son of god that's the question concerning his person there's also the quandary concerning his purpose verses 30 to 33 after after the grand slam right answer After Peter knocks it out of the park, verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You would hear crickets chirping at this point if you were there. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, being Christ, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. Now this is a quandary for the twelve. This is a difficult situation where they don't know what to do. They are perplexed. And I was quite delighted because, beloved, it's not every day I get, it's not every Sunday I get to uh, alliterate my points with Q. It's, it's quite rare. So it, this is a quandary. It, this is a difficult, uh, perplexing situation. They don't know how to process what they have just heard. They don't know how to apply what they have just heard. They're not even sure if they believe what they have just heard. This is a difficult situation. And it's difficult because of two things. First, he refrains, he restrains, he, he instructs, he sternly warns the disciples to keep their mouths shut. They finally get it right, now don't tell anybody about it. They are refrained, and then they have... They are revealed difficult, hard details that scandalizes them. Let's look first at the refrain. Jesus, verse 30, Jesus refrains. He, re, he restrains the disciples. The twelve are to be silent, and they are to tell nobody the grand slam truth that they are, have now just professed. They finally have got the right answer to the question you remember that question beginning back in 441 or 445 after jesus speaks and and he stills he brings to the mega storm he brings a mega calm he speaks and nature responds and the people that his disciples have been asking ever since after every single thing they've been asking what kind of man is this who does stuff like this and we have yet to have seen them answer this rightly until today. They finally can answer that great question and now they get to keep it to themselves. Verse 30 says that Jesus sternly warned them. This is, this is the, the word that is going to dominate the, re- the rest of the narrative. It's the word that is usually translated rebuke. It's a strong word. He, he strongly warned them. He sternly warned them to keep this to themselves. Why? Well, he's about to tell them, he's about to elaborate what must happen to them. He is now teaching them more about God's plan of redeeming men and of redeeming Israel through their Messiah. He's about to tell them what comes with the messianic package. He's, and, and what he is about to disclose to them, they are not going to receive well. It's going to be kind of hard for them. Well, why is that? Bec- this is because the Jews had certain messianic expectations. They had in their minds the, 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 the complete picture of what Messiah was going to do. And, and we do this all the time. We ha- have, have we not had expectations about what marriage would look like? what marriage would be like, what, what that perfect job would be like, what kids would be like. We know what it's like to have this as an expectation and to get something else. Messiah was supposed to be in their minds. Well, he, he was supposed to be the son of David and the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He was going to deliver the people. He was going to usurp the Gentiles. But in their minds, Messiah was going to come in and he was going to kick Rome and kick Herod out of town. He was supposed to ride them all out of town. He was to restore prosperity to Israel. Messiah is supposed to bring back Israel's glory days. Messiah was supposed to make Israel again a a nation to be feared, a nation to be respected. 
Some of you with a little white on your faces or on top of your head, you can, you can remember back when, uh, when the dollar meant something, when America meant something, and we're still a contender in the game, but I really don't know if we're quite the, top, the, the big dog on the hill that we used to be 50, 60 years ago. The Jews were looking for Messiah to come back and bring Israel back to those good days. When the Gentiles, when the Goyim feared and respected the Jews. Messiah would come and restore the boundaries of Israel back to the Jews, back by force, by divinely empowered and protected armies. Back to the days of old when Israel's armies would go out and march and slay army after army after army. No matter how better they were equipped, no matter how far they were outnumbered, they were awaiting a savior who would rally the people who would lead Israel's united and spirited armies in the battle like like as as though they were one man like the judges or like the kings of old like king david they were expecting messiah to be a man who can't be outsmarted who can't be uh, uh cornered or routed or or out uh smarted or beaten and they certainly weren't expecting a messiah who could die They weren't expecting a Messiah who would suffer and die. And what does Jesus tell them that he, as the Messiah, is going to do? He's going to suffer and die. He's not going to be in in this advent. He's not going to be this triumphant, conquering, glorious Messiah. He, He will be. But this time he is not. He instead is going to be a suffering, a humble, a meek Messiah. You, you, ever, you ever order something and, and the advertisement tells you it's this and then when you, 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 get it, it, you get it, you open the box and you're like, this is nothing like what I thought I was going to get. I'm so grateful that Amazon now has those pictures where you can see someone else who's bought it, the thing and open it up and taken the pictures so you can see what you're going to get before you commit. This is... This is being let down low for them. He's going to be a Messiah who, he's not even going to be killed by those pagans, by those wicked, godless people. Who does Jesus say is going to be responsible for his rejection, for his death? His Messiah will be killed and rejected by Messiah's own people. What is that? He will be a Messiah whom Messiah's people will not want. And so we we must ask, why why are the disciples to refrain from telling people about Jesus now that they understand who he is? Well, think about this. If if this is a hard pill for the disciples to follow, if if this is too difficult for the men who have been with Jesus for two years and they've heard his teaching day after day they've seen his miracles they know who he is and if this is a hard pill for those men to swallow what about the masses who haven't sat under his teaching who haven't seen all the miracles they've seen a lot don't you think that the crowds and the people who've seen less, heard less, understood less, that they would have an even harder time understanding why their Messiah must suffer, be rejected, and die? And if the, if the 12, the men who are supposed to go out and proclaim this truth, if it's difficult for them to even grasp it, what hope do they have in, in, in presenting and defending and making the argument that he is the Christ? This is a stumbling block for them. So Jesus wisely tells them to not tell anybody about it. They are reframed. That's a difficult thing for them to hear. Second, difficult thing that, that they receive is a series of details in the revelation that Jesus gives to his disciples. We see this in 31 to first half of 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. But look at that word must in 32. That dominates everything that comes after it. He must suffer many things. And the must 
follows over. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed and then he must rise again after three days. Let's look at the first hard detail. The Christ must suffer. He must suffer. As God in the flesh who should be received by his own people, who who should and ought to have been lavished by worship and honor and gifts and offerings and tribute, he will get the exact opposite. He must suffer. Rather than enjoy the preeminence of all things, he will grow up under the law, under fulfilling every jot and tittle. He will be subject towards his parents. He will pay taxes. And then most of the people will not receive him. He'll be betrayed by by a close friend, by one of his closest disciples. All the rest of the guys who who still profess to believe in him, they're still going to desert him. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be beaten upon, spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, and all that before he gets to die. The Son of Man must suffer. And he's going to go on in chapter 9 to say in verse 12, it's written of the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. 14.21, speaking of uh, just as he's about to be arrested, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Go where? Go to his death. 1449, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. This, these things must happen. And notice that Mark says he began to teach. He's not just saying it here. He, this, is going, this is marking a new stage in his ministry. There have been few allusions, I think only twice, back, way back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, there have been veiled allusions to his passion, to his suffering to his death but beloved from this point forward Lenski comments from this point forward the note of suffering which has been markedly absent from the from the first half of the gospel suffering meets us at every turn rch Lenski said that and it's true because he begins to teach it here we're going to see it in chapter nine we're going to see it Twice in chapter 10, we're going to see it uh, uh, in chapter 12, and we're going to see it twice in chapter 14. The note of suffering dominates the second half of Mark's gospel. The Son of Man must suffer. Secondly, he must be rejected. This word means to Uh, upon inspecting something, upon looking at it closely. To be, it means to be discarded or or to turn away, to be tossed, to be trashed, to be evaluated as worthless, to be unwanted. It's like you ever walk along and you see a coin and, oh, there's a coin. You pick it up and it's a Canadian quarter. What do you, what, what good is a Canadian quarter? Why are they here? I don't know. What do you do with a Canadian quarter? You leave it for the next sap who comes along. Ooh, a quarter. The elders, Mark is emphatic, each of these, the, the definite articles before each. The elder, he will be rejected by the elders and the Pharisees and the chief priests. Those who comprise the Sanhedrin, the ruling, the highest ruling governing body within Israel. They will each look at him, they will inspect him, and they will toss him aside like garbage because they see no worth in him. He must be rejected. Third, the Christ must die. As I I said, he's alluded to it very briefly in thinly veiled allusions. No, greatly veiled allusions, the other way. Now he's stating it plainly. And then fourth, the Christ must rise again. And beloved, I don't think this even got through the outer layers of their ears. I, don't, I think the first three things were such bombshells to them. I don't think they even heard this, despite the fact that Jesus would go on to teach that he must rise again. The disciples are so 
slow to believe. And if you remember back to our Easter service when we looked at Luke 24, even after the women reported to the, to the 12 that Jesus had risen, Judas wasn't there, it was the 11. After the women reported the resurrection, did the disciples believe? No. And Peter and John run to the tomb. They see the empty tomb. Does, does Peter believe? No, it says he, he marvels. He, he's, he's shocked. He's, he can't believe it. Even after the road to Emmaus that the two report to the, to the 11, they've seen the risen Lord. They don't believe it. It's not until uh, what, what um, Luke writes in, in chapter 24, in 45 and following, then after he appears to them, and they think he's a ghost, Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the, understand the scriptures, and he said to him, to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the third day. It's not until after the resurrection that the disciples go, oh. So for the time being, this is hard for them to receive. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And it's unfortunate that they didn't grasp that he must rise, all according to the scriptures. So this is a hard pill for them to swallow. So we look at Peter's rebuke of the Lord in middle of verse 32. This is obviously too much for them to bear. You and I had the expectations that they had. I'm sure it would be for us as well. They are utterly shocked. They are scandalized that their beloved teacher... The, the man whom they know now to be the Christ would suffer and face rejection and that he would die. Sure, they can't understand how Jesus can be a suffering, how, how Messiah can be both a suffering servant and a conquering king. That, that, that Somehow by dying, they, they're concluding that he can't fulfill all of the messianic promises to Israel. This twist, this 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 bombshell is simply too much for them and their reason and their senses are completely compromised, completely overpowered. So what does Peter do? I mean, he just he just hit it out of the park. Is he going to hit another grand slam? No, he he does, Peter does what he thinks is sensible, and he takes the God-man aside. He takes God himself, the creator, aside and begins to correct God. That's sensible, right? He t- verse 32, in the middle, he says, He took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. This is that, this is that stern warning, or it means to admonish, to correct. This word has the idea of a superior speaking to a subordinate. You know, a child doesn't sternly warn or rebuke his parents. Uh, an employee doesn't sternly warn or rebuke his manager. It's out of the, um, out of the 30 times this is used in the New Testament, 25 times it means to rebuke, to authoritatively correct. Peter is speaking this way to God. Peter is trying to assert himself and authoritatively correct God. Come here, Lord. Let me um, let me let me set you straight. Let me let me let me let me fix some things. Let me teach you a two or thing about what Messiah is supposed to do. Come here, come here. Now, 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 Lord, listen carefully. You don't, anybody who has the title Lord, you don't speak to them that way. Now, Peter's audacity to rebuke Jesus shows us that despite his, despite his correct understanding of that Jesus is the Christ, he does not accept Jesus's interpretation of what the Christ is supposed to do. Now, think about that. The creation claiming to know better than the creator. Like a child scolding his parents, we, you know, we we see YouTube videos of that. We we may think it's cute, but beloved, it's not. Look at how Jesus did. Jesus think it was cute. Look at look at how Jesus responds. Verse thirty three. But turning around, 
and he, he, he sees the, the 12. He's addressing, he's, he has in mind the whole 12 since Peter is speaking on behalf. He's representing the 12, but he rebukes Peter because Peter was the one who had the audacity to, to rebuke him. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. What, what a rebuke. Now, why does he call Peter Satan? Well, if you remember back to Jesus' temptations by Satan, what form of temptation did Satan give him? He said, fall down from this temple, and God will send his angels to rescue you, and, and then, then all the world will know that you are the Christ. Or if you would just worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. What is Jesus tempting, what is Satan tempting Jesus with? What do you think he's tempting Jesus with? He's tempting Jesus with the things that he's going to get because of going through the cross. Remember for the, for the glory set before him, Jesus endured the cross, not despising the shame. Satan was tempting Jesus with all the things that he will get at his second coming. Lordship, dominion, universal, cosmological worship from every tongue and the bowing of every knee. Satan is saying, as if Satan can offer this, he's saying, I'm going to give you all this stuff that I know you want. Just don't, you don't need to do that cross thing. You don't need to do that suffering and dying thing. You can get all of the things that you want without going to the cross. Satan was tempting Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah than the one that the scriptures said Messiah would be. And what is, what is Peter doing? Peter is suggesting, he's arrogantly presuming that he can teach Jesus that there is another way to be Messiah than the way that the scriptures say Messiah would be. Do, you, do you see why Jesus calls him Satan? It's, listen, Jesus, the stuff about being suffering, about, about, about being a suffering Messiah and rejected and killed, yeah, that's not going to work for us. So come on, that's, that's, that's form a think tank. Maybe, you know, if you, maybe if you just modify your uh, 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 ministry philosophy maybe we can maybe we can make friends with the pharisees and the scribes and the, and the elders maybe we can work things out and you know maybe if you just reach people's felt needs the crowds might like you too just give them what they want you know in opposing jesus's path to the cross peter had become for a moment a mouthpiece for satan and as matthew says he became a stumbling block for jesus a stumbling block which the Lord quickly removed. He, he rebukes the rebuker. He puts Peter in his place, puts him in check. Why? Because he knows that the path to glory goes and redemption requires him to suffer and to die. And beloved, Peter would eventually embrace this. This is difficult for him, but he would write in 1 Peter 2.24, those of you who've been here for a while can remember we just went through 1 Peter 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. And then in 3.18, for Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Peter would eventually get why the Son of Man must suffer and must be rejected and must die and must be raised again. Now, there, there, there are multiple applications that we can get from this. There's, there's a theology of suffering that we could look at. There's, a, a theo there's more instruction about what it means to be a disciple and to not try to correct your teacher and to be continue to be teachable. But, that, beloved, there are two things that I want you to walk away with. First, who is Jesus? Can you, with conviction, 
not because your parents told you this is what to believe, not because your spouse or your husband or your wife said this is what you must believe, not because you're the guy up at the podium or the pulpit is telling you this is what you must believe. Beloved, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Not one of many, but the Christ, the Son of God. Can you with conviction say that and affirm that? You can't get into heaven vicariously through somebody's, somebody else's faith. You must appropriate that truth yourself. Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, we must embrace his suffering and bleeding and his dying and his rising for you. You must believe he is who he says he is. You must believe that he died and rose again for your sins. Jesus didn't die to be an example for us. He he didn't die um, to, to be a moral example. He didn't die for anything else but to judiciously pay for sins of his people. Did he die for your sins? To crucial truths to walk away with from this text. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. We have seen in this wonderful, beautiful gospel your patience with your disciples. We have seen you gracious. We have seen you merciful. We have seen you skillfully bring those who follow you along to greater spiritual maturity and greater understanding. Lord, please continue to do that for us. Anybody who walks through these doors and can't affirm these truths in their hearts, sovereignly work in them. Help us to affirm with Paul Help us to profess with our mouths that Jesus is Christ and believe in our hearts that that the Father rose you from the dead.